0: to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is laid up with an ankle injury this week, so I'm Paul Atkinson from MI6HQ, your interim host, and I'm joined today by Bill Koenig, David Lee, James Page, Ben Williams, and Lisa Funnell. Is that how you say your name?
1: You can say Funnell. I usually say funnel, but I answer to both. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, there we go. There's Lisa. She's our new guest for the week. And before we get on to things, can everyone introduce themselves in that
2: order? Uh, I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. This is
3: David Lee. I run the James Bond dossier. I'm author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond, and I am also the uh, founder and only member of the Man with the Golden Gun fan club.
4: Um, I'm Ben Williams. Uh, I write for MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential.
5: Hi, I'm James Page, co-founder of MI6 and the website and the magazine, and this week I have been mostly explaining the difference between Volante and Vantage to people. <laughs>
1: Last but not least, I am Lisa Funnell. I'm an associate professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Oklahoma, and I've published a few books and a whole bunch of articles on James Bond focusing a lot on gender and geopolitics.
0: Thanks gentlemen, and uh, I'm really pleased to say we have some gender diversity on the panel for, for the first time in our 11 or 12 episodes that we've been running. So thank you for joining us and also thank you for bringing an academic perspective, which is something I want to start talking about. So on a, I don't know I don't want to make you feel too much like an object of curiosity in this strange world. But I'd like to know a little bit from, from Lisa about how you got started in academia and how you sort of turned James Bond and how you balance your, your fandom with the film franchises that you write about, because I know you don't write exclusively about James Bond, with the sort of the, the professional obligations as well. Does that sound like a fair question?
1: That sounds like a fair question. I'll try to remember your question as I'm answering. I started studying James Bond when I was doing my master's degree. I did a master's degree at Brock University in Canada, and I had the opportunity to work with Jim Leach. And Jim Leach was one of the first academics who was working on uh, James Bond scholarship in the early 2000s. So as this new wave of scholarship was coming out, I ended up working with him and I did my master's thesis on the Bond Girl phenomenon, trying to sketch out a topology of, of the Bond girl. And I continued my research on in, in various different forms. I wrote a book on Chinese warrior women, but that was really influenced by my love of Michelle Yo in Tomorrow Never Die. She inspired me to go and look into her background and to see how she became the American, uh, the sorry, the amazing action superstar that she is. And alongside all of my research on Chinese action women, I've continued to study James Bond. And I have found that there, at least when I first started writing on James Bond, there was limited scholarship looking at gender, feminism, issues of critical identities, And I've always felt that in academic research, our goal is to fill the gaps. And so I wrote a paper on feminism and villainy. Um, I've written papers looking at various facets of geopolitics. I ended up publishing an anthology on the women of James Bond, working with 28 other scholars um, and, and challenging them after the release of Skyfall to really look at the representation of women from a variety of different perspectives. And so I've had the Privilege and the pleasure of writing about James Bond for the past, oh, I have no idea how long it's been, maybe 15 years, um, and making a career out of it. So much so that I teach a course on gender and James Bond at the University of Oklahoma and have done so for the last six years. Um, So that's my academic research and my academic path. In terms of why I study James Bond, I think it's important to study what you love. James Bond is incredibly popular. Um, This is a franchise that has such a a profound global reach, and I've always felt that if something is popular and if people are enjoying watching it, then it is worthy of, of study. Um, and I have been able to fortunately carve out space where I can still study James Bond. I have watched these films too many times uh, that I can count. I always enjoy doing <clears throat> my research marathons, spending a good four days watching the films back to back to back, doing my 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 transtextual research across all of these films, uh, but also recognizing the fact that I can like something, but I can also critique it and that there is space for both of these things to coexist. I can enjoy certain aspects of James Bond. In fact, I love the privilege of James Bond and very much wish that I had some of those privileges uh, (laughs) that he enjoys, right? So there's always been that type of appeal, but I can also look at these films and understand them being a product of their time. I can see the changes in terms of female representation, in terms of the representation of people from different races, different ethnicities, nationalities. Um, but I can also question and critique and want more for and from James Bond. And I think that there's a place and a space to do both. And I certainly encourage my students in whatever media course that I take to still enjoy what they're studying and to be able to critique it. And when people say, you know, James Bond is the most problematic franchise... There are problematic elements, but tell me what you like, and I can tell you what's problematic about it. You know what I mean? Like give me another franchise, give me another text, and I can also critique it. We always watch things that have problematic messages. And so it's really about having media literacy, understanding the different lenses that we have to look at these these films and these franchises or whatever we consume um, and be able to make choices for ourselves about what we take into our system and what we can sort of cast aside and say, I just want something a little different or something more.
0: Thank you. That was super comprehensive. Are We often, I guess, and, we are, and I think actually what's happened on this podcast is we've talked about sort of the character of James Bond and a little bit about how potentially he's, you know, he's not a role model per se, right? Like his actions are not commendable in a lot of cases, but we kind of have to separate who the character is from the the message of the franchise and the way it conducts itself as, as a text, as you say, right? Is that a distinction you're having to draw reasonably frequently in your own work?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever fully fleshed it out like that in my own work. Um, I understand him to be a fictional character. I, I understand him to be representative of of certain ideas or ideologies. I don't think anybody really upholds him as being a role model, but at the same time, people do consume James Bond and perform in that vein in their own lives. So I have friends, and if I ask them, what was the first drink you ordered at a bar? Some of them have said a martini dry, shaken, not stirred. We're constantly Um, engaging with him in a very sort of performative aspect. And so we are taking stuff in and we might not necessarily be aware of the degree to which we are fully embodying these messages. So as much as we can sit here and say he's not necessarily upheld as a role model, he certainly is um, in some ways um, revered for some of these other aspects. So he might not be a role model, but it doesn't mean that those traits are not being, in a sense, consumed and enacted um, through our consumption of him
0: yes yeah, so there's the subconscious versus the conscious there
4: yeah. <laughs> i'd argue that um there are quite a few people who do uphold him as a role model mm-hmm. um, rightly or wrongly certainly you've only got to look at some of the the websites that talk about the, the kind of the consumption side of uh, uh james bond in terms of the materialistic kind of uh, elements of it um how how he dresses, uh, what he eats, uh, how he conducts himself, even to a degree, uh, certainly in some of the uh, conversations that, that you see in uh, online uh, about how he um, is not an anachronistic character. Um, some of these kind of, shall we say, uh, traits that aren't really in line with today's zeitgeist um, are, are somehow embraced and held up as something that, um, you know, where people say, Oh, I think it's, I think it's good that he's this kind of uh, throwback and we need more people like this. You do see that kind of rhetoric coming up quite a bit.
2: Fleming always said, um, you know, he's not a hero. He's a blunt instrument, but I don't know if he really meant that or if, or against all his desires, he kind of sent Bond in that direction. You know, he's, if he's a hero, he's a flawed hero, definitely.
4: Even Craig has, has said that he kind of—I can't remember the exact quote—but it was something along the lines of, um, "I wonder if I'm uh, the villain, just on on the good side." Certainly, he's playing him as a as more of an anti-hero rather than a hero. And
3: that that, that attitude kind of comes out of Casino Royale um, when when he's uh, doubting about his role in the world and and that of of the West and the East, though, as well.
2: But then Vesper's death clarifies things at the end, and he, I'm talking about the novel now, um, clarifies him and he has a sudden sense of purpose again.
1: I I was going to say, I think that this component that he's not a definitively good character or bad character or a definitive hero or villain is what people are sinking their teeth into because no matter what hollywood gives us these you know definitive good characters and bad characters you know luke skywalker is in white darth vader is in black the world that we live in is far more complicated than that and when we think about protecting you know countries and resources and our lives and lifestyles there really is an element of doing whatever it takes and whatever it takes is not always going to be a good Thing It's oftentimes phrased or presented as being a necessary thing. And so I feel as though this franchise really gives us that complicated dynamic of trying to remain committed in Bond's mind to queen and country, uh, staying loyal, doing what is right, but oftentimes having to do What is necessary with a double O license, which means killing people and making those types of decisions. And sometimes they're based on logic, sometimes they're based on instinct, and sometimes they are based, you know, truly on emotion. And having us as viewers then navigate our place and our feelings, just like Daniel Craig is sitting there trying to navigate his place and his feelings. I think he understands that it's a lot more complicated. Bond is a lot more of a complicated figure, at least in the Craig era, I think, than than in some of the previous films.
2: Well, also, you're taking a character who was created in the winter of 1952, and -hmm. you know he's now. I'm talking about now in the films. You know he's been time shifted given his original birth date, he, how old he'd be. But, you know, so, so essentially he has been moved, he's been shifted in time. So he now exists not in his original time. And he's now kind of, he's not adrift exactly, but he's-
4: He's an anachronism.
2: Yeah, well, and there was, a, there was a, and something similar happened in 1969. There was a movie just called Marlowe and had James Garner as Philip Marlowe. And the the original novel was written in it was published in 49. And they tried to establish Marlowe as kind of out of his time. And there's a scene where Marlowe's in a TV studio talking to a guy, and he's not watching the show that's being produced. He's instead like watching a, a Greta Garbo movie on a monitor off to the side. And you know, he's kind of distracted by it like that's really his time. And, and so that's kind of like what the the film Bond is going through now. He's he's not in his original time. He's in a totally different time and he has to make adjustments. Yeah,
3: there's one thing about Bond, though, uh, that that I think is timeless. And it, I think it's also probably one of the big reasons that he is is popular as a, as a role model. And it's that basically – He's someone who it doesn't matter what kind of situation you put him in, he knows how to act. And the the kind of examples that I, I usually give when I'm talking about this are, you know, you take him to a gypsy camp, he knows he knows what to do there, no problem him in the casino no problem and you know all of us at some point in our lives we are in a situation and we've got no idea what's expected from us and so it, that those are the moments that we kind of need to get hold of our inner james bond and uh, and and know how to react
2: right he, he he's a he's a, a civil servant yet he can go to all these swank casinos again going back to the novels and the novel moonraker i mean i forget what bond's salary is and what it would be in today's dollars but anyway i mean he's you know he doesn't go to these kind of he doesn't belong to these kinds of clubs by himself he doesn't have enough money but he's brought in to you know fix the situation with tracks
4: yeah that's 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 true but there is there is also a, a i mean they do specifically talk about how much he earns at one point you can infer um that he has independent wealth i guess in in,
5: in monday parlance we'd say it was a trust fund kid. yeah,
4: yeah. I, I, I think in moonraker ben
3: it says that he, he gets so much annual salary and he gets about the same uh, as a, an annual private income as yeah, well i think that's right I, sorry i've forgotten that but yes you're right he sort of has his salary but
4: then he's he's in, he's sort of not independently wealthy in the sense of like he's got
2: huge amounts of funds, but he he gambled. Also, he's not worrying about saving for retirement. There's a line about that in the novel as well. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to (laughs) say. I
4: I wanted to ask Lisa something um, that she touched on just before, which was about Bond's license to kill in the sense of his ability to make decisions that kind of go above uh, the rules of engagement or international law in a sense. You know, he's been given this this carte blanche, and sorry to use that expression, but that's, you know, one can make the argument that he does do all of this stuff for a greater good, that, you know, he is serving queen and country. But Lisa, do you do you find that often he, he exercises this license rather selfishly rather than altruistically?
1: Hmm... That's a good question. I mean, there are instances where um, the only thing that comes to mind right now is License to Kill. So there are instances where he goes rogue and his entire mission in the movie License to Kill. He's actually a murderer. Because he has had his license revoked, but because he has this moral and brotherly connection to Felix Leiter, and he wants to avenge the attack on Leiter and Leiter's wife, Della, that somehow that justifies him, I don't know, going, traveling south, Um uh, murdering a whole bunch of people, destroying a whole bunch of property. Um, yeah, so technically,
5: no, this is
4: is sanctioned, is
5: it? Well, I think he only. How many how many people does he actually kill? I think it's only two. It's it's, it's the guy on the boat that kills Sharky. Yeah. So he, he kills him, and he kills Sa- and he kills Sanchez. Yeah. No, he the other,
4: He lets the other guy fall into the grinder as well. Uh,
1: Dario he's still Del Toro's character. Yeah, Dario. Yeah.
5: Would well, that be classed as manslaughter?
1: <laughs> well, I
5: mean, he
0: doesn't exactly save him, does he?
5: Um, but my point is, I remember talk, we, we interviewed, um, I think it was John Glenn, years ago about it. And the the whole point of that screenplay was that Bond engineers the deaths of everybody, He manipulates but people. But he doesn't. Into them. But he manipulates people because he hasn't got his license to kill anymore. So he can't just go around kill him but he
4: does anyway so
2: what the hell but he yeah so two two murders is fine right <laughs> well but the other thing is he, he majorly screws up this long-running undercover operation by the hong kong yep. authorities and and um there's a scene where uh i'm sorry the the character's name escapes me but the um the pilot tells him this and this is actually for me. This is one of Dalton's best scenes in the movie. He this realization comes in just how badly he has screwed things up. Um, so now he has to then go after going on a, pers- a purely personal mission. Now he's got to like set <laughs> things right after he messed them up. Um, you know, it's, it, to, to me, that's one Can of the I more interesting scenes. Ben's question
0: and broaden it out to rather than saying something like. It's for personal means, but maybe he uses that license liberally. I'm thinking of the gentleman he has a punch-up with at the top of uh, a building in Cairo in the Spy I Love Me, and he's hanging by his tie. Bond says, I need the information. Right. Once he gets the information, he just flicks him off to the ground. Like, Is that a needless use of violence? And I
4: still think that's within the remit of his...
5: Self defence.
0: His
4: decision making then, as, as Lisa said, it's all it's, it's within his license. When he's gone rogue and, and this is particularly evident in the Craig area where he seems to go rogue quite often. He a lot of a lot of the things that he does seems to be a, a lot more self serving than than particularly for for Queen and Country. And that instance you bring up, Paul, I think, well, you could argue. You can argue it's like when he kicks Locke off the uh, off the side of the cliff. There, you know, there there is perhaps a, a little, a little more than. a kind of, personal of isn't it? Uh, Judicious force there, but
5: I think the one that probably stands out the most then is 006, You know, for England, James. No, for me. There you go. Yeah. Right. So that that's him actually acknowledging that no, he wanted to do that.
4: Yeah. I mean, it, it neatly dovetails into the fact that he can get away with it because it is still in sort of – it's part of his, his
2: duty. In the case of The Spy Who Loved Me, you could argue that uh, the, I believe the character's name was Sandor, the guy who was hanging onto his tie, mm-hmm. that it was highly unlikely that you know, if, if Bond had you know, brought him up to the roof, you know, Sandor probably would have tried to kill him again and Bond would have tried to kill him. <laughs> you know, he, he would have ended up doing it one way or the other, so they went with him. The one with the snappier dialogue i suppose
4: well it comes down to that whole thing of like you know instead of pirate ryan where you let the you let the guy go does he come back and shoot you later wrong um and you have to use a little bit of uh your, your judgment to say look this guy is a professional hired killer we know that
5: i can give you an example of when he doesn't do it which is Spectre mm-hmm. where After the after the plane chase Where Hinks Is through the windshield And his little You know We in the audience See his little finger twitch We know he's not dead But I'm just like Oh he must be dead I'm just going to carry on Not going to bother checking And then of course He comes back
1: But he also takes it One step further In Spectre By letting Blofeld Live at the end And it raises that question of restraint if you know that this person is the mastermind of all of whatever he tries to say i I greatly dislike specter so i'm trying to like phrase it in such a way that like my bias (laughs) doesn't come off because none of that movie makes sense to me but you have this person who's supposed to be this huge mastermind that for three somehow for three movies he's you know, had all these people working near him, under him, attached to him, and he's pulling these strings, and he's standing there. And the option is to imprison him, where if you know in any movie you imprison a mastermind, they're going to get out. And I get the Blofeld trilogy, keeping that open and all that stuff. But it's one of those instances where, you know, I don't advocate murder, but I'm just sitting there being like, if you were to kill him, it would be Easier because in so many instances before you have the villains looking at Bond and instead of killing him they tell him his master plan and they let him live and Bond gets away and it's one of those instances where I'm just sort of sitting there thinking to myself this is a really bad idea you're using this restraint and I get the whole point that they were trying to get but I I was like just kill him
5: and I think the restraint is brought on by Madeline's watching at the end of the bridge.
1: Well, uh, that's 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 the reason. It's not just that,
4: Craig. It's Craig's Bond always has, has been a character-driven Bond and you want there to be a character arc in each film and because he's that kind of an actor and he would kind of want that. Um, it's it's part of the arc of his character in that film. I, I agree with Lisa, it's not a particularly well-written film and um, there are a lot of very serious
2: holes and I think Bond as a character probably would have... Sure. you're right ben that's supposed to be part of the arc this is you know him him refusing to shoot blofeld is supposed to be like I, i'm ready to quit i'm ready to to leave you know i'm run out of bullets he says after he you know sends the the clip out of the gun
3: now i i loved how lisa uh qualified it by saying she doesn't uh, advocate murder <laughs>
1: I had to throw that in there. Like, like let's just not kill people, but yeah, just
0: in case, just in case we thought you did. Yeah, yeah, one of the of all Bond fans we we'll I, Yeah,
1: I like being employed. Yeah, I like being a professor. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I like being employed. So, yeah. just throwing that disclaimer out. <laughs> <laughs> I,
4: yeah, I, I I do hear exactly what you're saying, this It would have it would have made sense for him to. Uh, got got rid of him Especially with the kind of Cold-blooded character That Bond is usually Portrayed as being And it would have Tied things up a bit More, more neatly
3: I, I think Spectre would have felt A lot more satisfying If he'd shot him uh, yeah. Because it, the, you get the, All these kind of uh, This very bitty ending And uh, it, you never quite know When it's ended
5: uh. Yeah the, ori- the original ending Of course was that He goes back to MI6 And leaves Madeline On the bridge by herself And Sam Mendes changed it yeah. Prior to shooting So it, well, I think you know who would have been happiest
0: if Blofeld had died. Christoph Waltz. <laughs>
5: uh, James doesn't
0: believe the plot twist either. I don't believe it.
2: Well, and I read one of the um, the executive notes, and he said, and they were kind of Ooh, shoots him like Ooh, that seems pretty cold blooded. Like, well, yeah, he's got a license to kill, but. have you not seen
3: a
4: bond film before
3: (laughs) This, this guy has just told you that for the last
4: three films he's been the one who's been responsible for literally everything that's gone wrong and yeah
5: you know it goes a bit to like you know script by committee right bill we've talked about that before and you know the the netflix experiment on choose your own ending which is i think where things are heading because that's how you keep everybody happy i actually think the net result of that is nobody's going to be happy because the you're just losing the conceptual integrity of the plot you'd rather see a
0: coherent film that's you that you disagree with or don't like the artistic choices of than one that doesn't fit. Absolutely. Yeah, I,
3: I, I, I agree completely. You've got to you, you've got to throw people out of the, out of their comfort zone sometimes and put them somewhere where they didn't want it to go.
5: Yeah, I mean yeah. the other the other thing is you know had Game of Thrones ended the way everybody wanted it to, there'd have been ten million different endings
4: right here's here's a question has anyone here playing played the video game mass effect
5: no i know but i'm familiar with where you're going with it i've never even heard of it it's
4: three three games and choices that you make in the first game will affect the second and therefore the third so everything that you do how your character responds and acts um to individuals that they meet uh, even Mm -hmm. even the choices of which missions they go on those kinds of things they will play in later on And there, and and not just later on, but like an entire game later on. The trouble with doing that in sort of a cinematic world is that you, you know, that that's it's not an individual experience for a a cinema goer. We wouldn't be having this kind of conversation about a specific character because if, so for instance, the 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 character Shepard in the, the in that video game franchise is different to every single person that's played that game. But for us, if we want to talk about Bond, we have a kind of a grounding of who Bond is. And if we start going off down this choose your own adventure path, you know, of different endings, multiple endings, you you further dilute that character.
3: A couple of things I I agree with that, Ben, but, you know, uh, art should push you into uh, areas that you're not comfortable with. And uh, the other is, if you go back to the Brosnan era and if you think um, after Die Another Day, Bond fans had to decide... Where the Bond series went mm. after went from there, it would be Pierce, Pierce Brosnan, but a, a better film. It would be you know do away with with the invisible Aston Martin and all that kind of stuff in the Ice Palace, but it would be more of the same. Uh, and it would be uh, Pierce Brosnan. People used to love Pierce Brosnan, and uh, the it, it's it's hard, it, it, it's, or it's it's easy rather to to forget
2: how popular Brosnan was as Bond.
5: And you know who else would have wanted that, David MGM. <laughs>
2: yeah um, mm. there there's a saying you don't know what you want until you see it, so yeah, like you said, they would have wanted people would have wanted to continue on, you know then when something new happens, I never knew that it's like I kind of like this new thing
4: so so w- with the invisible car it's it's a question of you you know what you don't want and when you don't see it <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <That's>
1: true. <laughs> But back to the choose your own adventure thing, yeah. as somebody who dies in every choose your own adventure book growing up, I made the worst choices. There's, there's something to be said about the pleasure that comes from complaining. So think about Game of Thrones. It didn't end how the vast majority of people wanted it to end. And I'm sure we all have our own ideas and critiques, but there was some sort of Collectivism that came from all of us going online, talking with our friends, being part of this collective, somewhat global movement, watching and then collectively complaining after the fact. And one of the reasons why I hated choose your own adventure books is the fact that I made crummy decisions based on the circumstances and I had to live or die with the consequences. And so there is something to be said about having a little bit of that distance that gives us the option to not just critique but really criticize and let out all of these emotions of how much we've been invested. And there's a pleasure in doing that in engaging and oftentimes complaining. And in many ways, that's the reason why our digital culture and our social media these days um, seems to be booming because it becomes this, 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 this platform for people to sort of air a range of different feelings that they're having. And so I just wonder, you know, even with James Bond, and its relation to this new digital era, to people you know, going online and, and, and voicing their displeasure, that there is a bit of pleasure that we get through voicing our, our disdain about some of the choices that are made, but then it also creates pressure on those who are writing the script and who are producing the films, realizing that they have to then contend with these ideas, and maybe then they're going to make safer choices rather than... Um, Give us something that that we might not like in the product that we see. Hmm.
4: Collective complaining after the fact is, uh, (laughs) is welcome to being English, I think. Um, that's that's giving giving everybody in, in the whole world a dipping dipping the toe into to the to the British experience. How was how your, how, how uh, your soup, then? <laughs> oh, it was delicious.
5: Thank you. Walk out the restaurant. Never eat it. Never eating there again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah,
4: uh, exactly.
3: I, I think it's uh, I think it's far easier for people to talk about things that they don't like than things that they do like, and uh, it, and it's just uh, when. When it's something that, when it's something you you don't like you, you really feel it uh, the, pro- the problem is when it's something you like you're just kind of going along with the flow and so you don't I think get the same emotional response or at least I, I don't think I get the same emotional response you know uh, uh, you know seeing stuff that I like in a bomb movie um, yes I like it but I, I can't I can't express how I like it and how how it makes me feel. I, I think if there's something that I don't like, I definitely know why I don't like it, and so it's, it's easier to talk about.
2: It's as if you're more motivated by not liking something as opposed to when you're sad when you're but when you're satisfied, you're not as motivated to hit the keyboard and start typing.
4: The danger with this the danger with this is that we start to we start to spiral down this negative this negative pathway where where we we endorse and look for things that are going to annoy us, um, and that's and that's going to be encouraged.
5: That's why after more than a dozen episodes, uh, Dying of the Day and the Man with the Golden Gun have <laughs> been mentioned in every single episode. I think, <laughs>
4: right?
5: <laughs> no, I
4: I I like I like, um, I like uh, Dying of the Day. I think it didn't have enough gadgets. They needed two
0: invisible cars. And on that bombshell, just just in case
5: you missed the first one,
0: <laughs> I'd like to change direction a little bit and um, talk a little bit about diversity in Bond films in general. And I know that Lisa, because we exchanged some emails about this, had some thoughts about how the Craig era has sort of shaped and reformed certain things about James Bond's character in the public eye, but also regressed. A little bit as well and it, as a group we have talked a little bit about the introduction of um, Phoebe while the bridge to the writing team for bond 25 the untitled bond film but what kind of influence or voice do you Lisa think that she might bring to the scripting process that we haven't seen before and I guess the loaded question is something like, is gender necessarily going to provide a gendered perspective on the story? Like a lot of the press have been touting that she's going to make it feminist or make it Me Too or something like that. I don't necessarily think that there's a clear line between hiring a woman and having a distinctly politically gendered voice involved. Would you have some thoughts on this?
1: I don't even know where to begin on this. I have so many thoughts on, on all of this. When I look at most of our media, the vast majority of our media is made by men. Um, And usually it tends to be made by men who are very similar in terms of their race, their sexual orientation, socioeconomic background, and so on and so forth. And they have made a variety, and we'll look just at film, a variety of film products. If you look at any stats on Hollywood film, women make up probably less than 10% of directors, screenwriters, producers, um, uh, the composers, uh, composers, they make such a, I think there's like 2%, something like that. And yet we have them making a variety of films. They give us stories about women. They give us stories about men. Um, they give us different genres, some that are marketed more towards men, some that are marketed more towards women. And we seem to be okay with that. But when someone who's different from sort of the status quo steps in uh, to make a product, all of a sudden, their identity, be it their gender, their race, their sexual orientation and so forth, only then that does it become something that we start thinking about and talking about and asking how will it then influence the products that they create when not actually asking that question of every single other person um, who has made these types of films for a, a range and diversity of audiences. You see it in action films, that's sort of my bread and butter, when a, a, a woman is an action hero, a black man is an action hero, then suddenly we talk about gender and race in the film, and that's all that it becomes is their difference from the status quo and how we can give them a, an, ex, an explanation. I call it the explanatory narrative, sort of that's rammed down our throat as to why we have someone who is exceptional or different from the status quo in, in our movies. Um And so I bring that up because just because you have someone of a different identity doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to take whatever we're watching and and put it into a different place or a different extreme. There are women who make really great feminist films. They write really great feminist scripts. And then there's some who, who don't. I think Catherine Bigelow is a great director who has remained true to her focus predominantly on masculinity in the action films. And had you not known it was a Catherine Bigelow film, you wouldn't sit there and say, hmm, is this a woman giving us um, a take on masculinity in film? I look at someone like Barbara Broccoli, um, who is making a large number of uh, important decisions about the James Bond franchise And I look at the Daniel Craig era, and I would probably argue that Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace give us two very interesting and different women, Um, so much so that my students, they love Vesperlyn. They admire Camille Montes. These women are just different from the Bond girl template, and they're offering a different representation of femininity in this franchise. And then I look at Skyfall and I see this as being an incredibly regressive film in terms of female representation. Um, Having Moneypenny being demoted and told the field is not for you and not even having a redemption narrative. Having Severine be, in my opinion, one of the most disempowered uh, women in a Bond franchise who's a sex worker and who is shot and nobody seems to care. And then, of course, Judy Dench's character not being able to protect herself and at least save Bond from silver or be given a moment to do something substantial. And then we can look at Madeline Swan, and I know some people think that she's this great character. She's a collage or a composite of these familiar qualities of previous Bond women. She's got a bit of Tracy DiVincenzo in here, and I can probably go through her character and show you how she's a composite. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, her choice to walk away from Bond is not respected. And she's literally the princess in the castle that Bond has to rescue. And all of the power that, or the empowerment that she has is taken away from her. And so I look at these, sort of these two and two films, and they're produced by the same woman, you know, who's putting input in them. And I think two of them give us more powerful representations of women and two of them don't. And that brings me back to Monica Bellucci, who, if you're going to put Monica Bellucci in a film, give her something to say, give her something to do. Heck, make her blowfield, or give her something um, that would have sort of shocked and surprised us. So when it comes back to cycle back to your question about having a female script writer, is it going to somehow change or transform the Bond films? There was a female script writer on Dr. No that we don't talk about whose name I can't even Mm. remember at this moment. It's on the tip of my tongue. China there we which. go. I'm like, it was there. Um, so nobody's looking back at Dr. No and being like, mm, we don't know about the Bond franchise. I think that she's somebody who is interesting. Um, I think that her, um, the the stuff that she's written is witty. Maybe she can interject humor and wit into the Daniel Craig era, which I, I think has been missing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to change or transform the basic element and this broad reaction that people have i just don't think it is on par with the way that when the shoes on the other foot when our vast majority of our quote-unquote chick flicks and rom-coms and disney princess films are written directed and produced by men you don't seem to see that reaction so why is it when the shoes on the other foot we're, we're having this outcry
3: yeah i know I, I agree i agree with you completely with on the the female characters uh in in the daniel craig era because. I think almost universally, uh, Monica Bellucci. Uh, pe- people believe that she w- she was underused, but also I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody uh, who really supported the way that um, uh, Severine's character was treated in, in Skyfall either. Uh, it, it's it's mainly uh, disgust. I, I think really isn't isn't. Uh, uh, a word.
2: Well, and I mentioned on a previous podcast, and you know, like one of my least favorite moments in Skyfall is when Bond is bragging to Silva about the radio. Oh, radio. And, you know, meanwhile, here's poor Severn laying there dead. It's like, oh, who cares no, no, about her? Yeah, and, and, so, and so in a way
3: it's not working it's not working for for any audience
2: and also with monica blucci you know not only was she underused she was over marketed given how little she was in the film they were like making a huge deal about that they there was this they called it a photo call i guess in rome of craig and monica blucci and like and oh first age appropriate bond woman blah 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 and just like and she's in it for what five minutes six, something like that
5: I, I think the one that I have the biggest problem with which nobody's mentioned and it, it never really comes up now is fields yes yes um, yes absolutely and, how her yeah. character, and 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 Gemma Arterton um, has gone on the record since saying like she really hates how that character worked out and it's against everything she believes in um, oh,
4: I just I, I think the other thing too is that we're not there's a there's a distinct difference between uh, talking about uh i, I think uh when, when paul was, was was discussing this he was saying oh is it going to be feminist or is it going to be me too i think the me too movement is a very distinctly different thing one of the things that, it, that you'll notice in um the the, the last couple of bomb films has been a, a lot of sexual assault um, on women um and that isn't something that uh uh, you know, we would have had in Casino Royale, we probably wouldn't have had it in continental Solace, uh, although there was there was that uncomfortable moment with uh, General Medrano going into the into the hotel room. It, it's really interesting, as Lisa was saying, you've got a feminist who is, in Barbara Broccoli, who is, is the, at the helm of this and steering rudder, um, and yet in the last two films we've got Severine who... You know, Bond walks into the shower and just, you know, that's, that's an uncomfortable watch considering that he knows everything, what he knows about her character.
0: The provocative question then is, how did we get here? How, how did these, I mean, if we recognise the strong characters in Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale, how did we get here so quickly?
1: I mean, I would argue that Spectre is a reversionist Bond film, and it's reverting back to some of the politics and the politics of representation from earlier Bond films, and specifically the Connery era. When I showed Sean Connery films in my class, my students describe him as being rapey. He is the rapey Mm. James Bond. And right now, I mean, I'm on the fifth draft. I'm trying it again, trying to write a paper on um, sexual consent in the, the, the Sean Connery era, because there are some troubling uh, images and, and impressions um, that certainly stem, I would say, from some of the sentiments expressed by Ian Fleming himself and some of his character depictions in in the novels um so there is i see a connection at least a little bit between them although i would say that
3: do do, do you show uh, other films from the the same period in your classes because uh because i i I think i I think um you know some some of the attitudes and some of the way that Mm -hmm. the men act generally from that period are uh are, are very similar
1: yeah, we we talk more about like the evolution of sexual consent and um, even the words about sexual consent or mm-hmm. affirmative consent, that's arisen probably in the last decade. So I have students who are sort of raised in this culture, but this was not a culture that existed. Uh, at least our awareness of it did not really exist um, because we didn't have the term to identify. It It didn't mean that what we saw was right. It's like the term sexual harassment. It was coined in the 1970s, but that didn't mean that this type of conduct was um, okay beforehand. It was never okay. But once we have a term for it, we can really start to dig our teeth into it and address it. And so even a lot of these representations um, that we have in our media, uh, there's a long history. I'm actually editing a book Uh, I think, what what are we calling it? I think we're calling it screening times up and we're looking at rape culture in Hollywood. And um, we have all these authors who are, and scholars who are writing about in, in different ways and forms, how we do have issues with with rape culture and, and lack of sexual consent. And this goes beyond James Bond. So I think James Bond is reflective of other products. But if we just sit here and focus on James Bond and say it's the only problematic franchise, I think we're actually doing A disservice to ourselves we might try to make ourselves feel better by having a scapegoat but that's not really a reflection of the way that our culture works no it's
3: just uh, if i can't i can't think of any specific examples but uh you know when when i was a kid i used to watch you know TV at weekends uh, a lot, and it was all the old 1950s films with Cary Grant and various people. And you know, in in many of them, the, the man would would force himself to kiss the woman, and uh, there's you know there's no consent there, and she, she's visibly fighting you off in many also, cases. Also,
5: <laughs> David, all the Carry On films. <laughs> mm. In Star
4: Wars, uh, in Han Solo. You, you, There's, there's a moment. Uh, I think it. I was discussing this with a friend of mine the other day, and she was saying how, um, in Empire Strikes Back, um, there's a number of yeah. Earth you're right. Yes. Yes. That, that um, he, she says no, and he keeps coming into her space, and she says no again, and he continues. So there is, there is just this continual kind of, and he's the hero of the piece, and eventually, you know, they. They married, they have a kid.
2: Going back to Phoebe Waller Bridge for just a minute, she did an interview recently about Bond 25. She'd done other interviews about her other projects, but she did one about Bond 25 where she specifically said she wanted to make sure the women characters were better, but she was not messing around with Bond's character. And she even said, you know, the story was, you know, pretty much in place. It's, she's, I think there was a quote something, it's not correct to say I'm writing the movie, you know, as if it by herself. Um, anyway, it, it seemed like pretty middle-of-the-road comments to me, but I saw some of the reactions uh, on social media. Some were applauding, but some were just really annoyed about it. There's something I don't know if it was
3: the same interview, Bill, but she she also said that Bond himself doesn't need to treat women well, but the film franchise does. And I, I thought that was that was a very interesting comment. Yes, it was the same.
0: I mean, that comes back to the question about whether or not you can hold this person up as an as an icon. And so sexual violence is a part of our culture for so long, albeit that a, an atrocious thing. But if you kind of sweep it under the carpet and pretend like it doesn't happen or it hasn't happened in the past, then it's not, you know, sometimes films, sometimes media needs to be confronting in, a, in the way. And it's much more about the nuance of how you handle it. And I don't envy any screenwriter trying to situate their work in a, in a world where...
4: Yeah, can I also just point out that she's just a phenomenal writer? Um, does it have to be about feminism? Does it have to be that she's, um, you know, that her eyes cast over this thing is therefore a, uh, a feminist kind of um, reworking of the script? Why can't it just be that they've given it to a particularly good writer to have a and- look at?
1: And what is the definition of feminism? Like, what's the definition of feminism that's being used here? Because it's not feminism in the light of just making sure there's just equity in, you know, in in, in terms of characters. It's feminism, the dirty F word, meaning that she's going to ruin James Bond. These women are going to emasculate James Bond. He's no longer going to be James Mm -hmm. Bond and she's going to ruin it versus me. I like having, in a general sense, diversity in screenwriters. I like diversity of inputs. Um, And and I think about, when when we're talking, I think about the first Wonder Woman movie. Wonder Woman as a movie Mm -hmm. was good because Chris Pine's character was good. He was fully fleshed out. And I think there's something to be said about having whether it's, and again, Wonder Woman is about Wonder Woman, but having these other figures who are fully fleshed out characters and they can have flaws and they can make mistakes and maybe they might not be the strongest or the most empowered, but I want fully fleshed out characters that I can connect with that can make Bond's journey make more sense to me. And if she can provide that, it doesn't necessarily mean that every woman in the film is going to, you know, have a machine gun or, or do whatever we think she should do, but you know Vesper Lynn was a compelling character because she was a fully fledged character with this arc and we could connect with her and we could understand Bond's relationship to his job and to this this world because of how well she was developed and i think that's for me when i when i think about her and her goal is so that we just don't get another sort of severine character um, who's there to just sort of flesh it out a little bit more and to ask those tough questions of like do we really need to have James Bond walking in on a shower with a sex worker who has just told you she has been sexually exploited by Silva for years we all feel uncomfortable about that I'm just wondering why nobody along the way in the scripting process said you know what maybe that's not the sexiest thing for us to have and instead not have that in there.
2: What I think what happened with Spectre, I'm sorry, with Skyfall was she was depicted as wanting Bond to make it to the yacht. She had the champagne on ice. But then when he finally makes it, you had that problematical staging of it, and uh, they probably thought having the bottle of champagne made it all, all okay, but I, I, in the long run... Champagne of, is not consent. No, it's not, and and that scene hasn't aged well either.
4: No, and, and look, at the end of the day, her motivation is clearly to get onto the yacht so that he can, you know, dispatch silver, um, but there is, there is far more going on there. Uh, as Lisa said before, you know, although uh, Berenice does a really Great job with the with the little that she's given. Um, I think she has she really does imbue that character with as much um, character as she can uh, given given the lines that she got. At the end of the day, she is shot and discarded, um, and it's uh, after after essentially being.
5: It's not just it's a lot of the female characters in the Craig era, but some of the male characters are also treated badly, right. Like Mattis, for instance, has always been problematic. Yes. So I wouldn't say it's like um, mm-hmm. limited to or or focused on the female characters.
4: Sorry, but you can't just balance like saying oh, but men get treated relatively badly as well.
5: It has it. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like in in full context, there is a couple of male characters that get treated. Yes, badly they do, deep, but the, it's the, not the wider the wider implication. Of
2: it. I was going to say, um, as it relates to Severin's demise. I, I said this before, okay, Paula didn't m- meet the greatest ending in Thunderball, but at least Connery, like, looks at her for a moment and there's this sad John Barry music. He's at least thinking about her before he has to yes. get on with his business. And then with You Only Live Twice, you know, Aki dies and she doesn't end well, And it, but at least he kind of looks at her. And again, there's sad John Barry music. There's something else
3: which over the, over the um, entire franchise is that, we always have the sacrificial lamb and almost always uh it's it's a she and uh i, I mean not, not looking at at it from uh, a feminist point of view uh, at all it's it's so uh cliched now it, it's boring why do they continue with it
4: you know they talk about the bond formula and it's been a successful formula. So yes, let's have these kinds of characters in it and let's repeat that. The Bond franchise in itself has been a, a mirror up to our society and it, and it reflects our social um, laws and, and our attitudes right back at us. And it's one of the nice things about the Bond franchise is that it's all of these films spanning all of these decades that we can look back and say, this character moving through this time reflects how we view the world. I just sort of feel like you don't need to to persist with certain things. You have to you have to look at um, the the mood of the the time and say, actually, do you know what? Maybe maybe the sacrificial lamb being being a female character who's just sort of thrown aside isn't isn't the right way
2: to go. Well, they have had male sacrificial lambs and. They, overall though, they've had a very mixed record in terms of the audience really caring about the sacrificial lamb. Obviously, Karen Bay, you cared about a great deal. I would say you care a great deal about VJ in mm. Octopussy. Um, but in other movies, there's that one agent who climbed up the mountain in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, he's dead. Oh well. Um you know, he, that was more like a that was more like a plot point. Um <laughs> I'm trying to think other I mean, in, in at other times it just seems like, oh, it's a, they're checking a box, but
3: yeah exactly exactly, and just get rid of that box no,
2: unless it, unless boring. it works and moves the story forward or elicits a reaction or, yeah. or something we can we can always
5: we can always write them out of canon in the video games like you know agent Carter yeah, right look, this,
2: this this
4: is the thing it's I'm not saying it's lazy writing um but it's lazy writing if you want to um if you want to evoke an emotional reaction from an audience um getting somebody getting to like somebody and then killing them off i mean it's it's uh it's washing um serenity
2: or aki and you only live twice i would say you get to know her and like her paula not so much in thunderball but at least bond reacts uh, when when she's dead um
1: and just to raise an issue what we're talking here are about disposable characters or disposable people in in the narratives. And yes, there are a range of them, but oftentimes in film, and I'm just talking in a general sense, the most disposable characters tend to be men of color, women and women of color. So not just white women, but women of color. And it's just something to sort of keep in mind when we think about VJ, who's there and then disposed of. It's one of those things that always makes me feel uncomfortable because we have all of these tropes where, you know, you have people making fun of it, you know, in horror movies, who's the first person to die. Oftentimes it's going to be the black character that can't make it to the end of the film. These are very persistent elements that are that are there and so when i think sometimes about sort of exploited characters and if i'm looking at it through the lens of of looking at the role that race plays it does play a role in the world of bond to some degree who is considered to be more uh, disposable than than others
5: and and when hollywood goes when when hollywood goes against that i mean i'm thinking of like night of the living dead where the, the guy the character that makes it through to the end is african american was by accident It wasn't designed that way. Um, But that always stands out against the grain right back in the day of a film that shocked audiences by how it finished. And And when
1: when we think about Bond and his core unit, so when we think about largely the people who support him, For me, I define a Bond girl as being the lead female character. I know we use the term very broadly, but but the one who is his love interest, the vast majority of them have been white women. When I think about even in the Daniel Craig era, we have greater diversity with Moneypenny and Felix Leiter, each being played by a black actor, but you don't have Moneypenny and Felix Leiter in the same film. Maybe we'll we'll get that in Bond 25. It seems to be with the casting. Um, but his core unit has remained fairly consistent. The people who are closest to him tend to have a certain racial demographic, and it's usually greater diversity with secondary figures and with villains. And there's something to be said about that as well, because it's usually secondary characters and villains who die off in Bond films. So it's just something, It's it's been a consistent element uh, throughout the, the Bond films.
4: It sort of stems a little bit from the novels as well, but you would have... And certainly, that I think that comes from Fleming's uh, wartime experience, and I think uh, partly the Second World War did generate quite a lot of um, racism, certainly in terms of uh, towards towards Germans and Japanese, um, and to a lesser extent Italians. But um, you definitely had that persistent kind of oh, it's the Hun again, up to their no good tricks. Um, and that kind of bled through into the film series where you started to see the villains being um, generally kind of uh, either Russians or, or, or Germans or, you know, they would, they'd be strongly, thickly accented um, bad guys with, uh, with some kind of deformity. I just itself. got thinking
0: about Skyfall where we go to Hong Kong, but we don't actually go to Hong Kong. We go to a bunch of sets. And so uh-huh. you also get an mm-hmm. impression of a place and its people, from the locations themselves, right, and it's very hard to capture that on a sit, on the back lock at Pinewood as he floats glamorously up to the casino. And again, and again, right, you know, when you when you take off, you know, those boxes of we visit the casino, we go to a building at night, you don't get any of the sense of the cultural. That's what
5: Mark said when we were talking about locations for Spawn Twenty Five. And by the way, you know, Shanghai, not Hong Kong. Yeah, Mark was saying um, we haven't seen Craig apart from a little bit in Quantum of Solace. We haven't really seen him. In a local environment, very much, where you get the flavour of the location. We haven't and people had that really
3: for a long, long time uh, because the the films now they just jump from one lo- location to another, and they, there's never time to actually uh, feel like you've arrived anywhere.
4: Yeah, I think it's one of the, the one of the problems. David, I mean, you know, they, they they sort of did it a little bit in Quantum of Solace, um, where. Um, you know they 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 did a couple of insert shots of dogs on roofs and people hanging out there washing, um, doing the ironing on the street or whatever it was, um, which felt very shoehorned in and didn't and and clearly kind of like extras. Um, but then again, I wouldn't want to see the kind of the the same sort of thing we saw with octopusy where you've got you know the the um. Sword
3: swallowing and the, you know, snake charming. Um, in um, oh blimey, what, what's the film? Um, oh, my panel bad. of Bond experts, people. <laughs> <laughs> the the one after Moonraker. <laughs> there's there's a there's the bit where uh, he goes to Spain and they're near Madrid and uh you know escaping the the two CV. And uh, so we, I think it was all shot in Greece, but it, it, it mm. certainly looks oh. quite Spanish. But then uh, it's, it's a bit spoilt from my point of view because uh, they uh, the, the the music that in the background is mariachi music, <laughs> mm. and and it's just and it's just like whoa, uh, yeah. You don't get Spain, I
0: think. So we can we can go from one extreme to another where we um, in some cases we do very lip service to a location or to a, a population or to a culture and in the other cases, you know, by not by not actually showing up and not actually shooting on the streets, and the other cases like Octopusy where it feels maybe potentially even a little bit exploitative because we're using them for the want of a better word as colour, Huge, right? Usually, usually. I don't say you know, hugely, hugely, dying of the
5: day trying to make part of Spain look like Cuba with all the tropes, right? In that 30 second light travelogue. it's not as bad as liam neeson walking past the eiffel tower with a baguette and a string of onions which he's done right
4: nothing
3: okay. nothing is as
4: bad as liam
3: neeson i'll tell you though uh the i, I went down to cadiz uh back in 2007 maybe i've, I've said this before on this podcast but and um, it it really really looks like um it really looks like like Havana. It's um... yeah. I
4: I went there as well, um, David. I went there in um, I think about two thousand and eight, and it genuinely does have that feel to it. So it's, it's in terms of a doubling location. It's 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 a it's a as good a one as you can get considering they weren't able to
3: kind of
0: our shoot our old it. pal uh peter lamont is very mm. proud of that by the yeah, way yeah
4: he is that, right that
3: was that <laughs> was uh that was a perfect location yeah
4: um can i just can you know, just seeing as we just mentioned um liam neeson in taken i just want to go on record to say i hate that film so much um but that's it that's what i was going to say i just hate that film
3: You have you seen the tv series
4: I don't. I'm not going to. I. I just.
3: Can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's laughably bad. You should probably watch uh, it just for that.
4: So I, I had a, a. You know, Luke Besson. I, I. I loved the whole kind of big blue, and actually, I. You know, I, at the time, I loved Nikita, and then um, then uh, Leon as well. I thought they were really great movies, and then after a while, I just started to go. This this guy is a, dick. Um. That's that's. Uh, opinions on this podcast are purely those of the people speaking um, and have no reflection on uh, MI6 or its affiliates
5: Um, or Lisa's academic career
1: or Lisa's (laughs) academic career Um, I just got tenure I'm good, I'm good
5: (laughs) you
0: can tell us what you really
5: think now and that's when the murders began
1: (laughs) oh gosh
5: (laughs) Um,
4: I I was in the theatre the other day to see God, what was it I um, actually went to see, to see John Wick three, and they had a they had a clip for you know a trailer for Besson's new um, movie, which is uh, again just like a female assassin, fourteen uh, year old um, masturbatory piece of uh, cinema, uh, and I yeah.
5: Question for you, Ben, ha- Halle Berry in uh, John Wick three. How good would she have been in Dino's day if she'd have been like that? Oh,
4: I mean, just bring the dogs.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Her dog foo, that made the whole movie oh, for me. Fighting with her dogs. Man,
4: that was just the, the uh, just the best bit in the whole film. Yeah. I just I I literally was was screaming with delight at that and then after that it was um it, it wasn't as good even it though went I downhill after that. yeah i'm really into motorcycles i went i went for the motorcycles but i, I left for the left for the dogs <laughs> gone to the dogs
5: <laughs>
4: exactly. so, so, okay if you're a dog person
3: it's good to see it's, it's just, Is that right? <laughs> it's just a, yeah it's great <laughs> that's all i'll say it's just, Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll go and see it then. Um,
4: yeah, it's just hours of Halle Berry, Halle Berry, walking her dogs down the
0: down the beach. It's all it is for like about forty minutes.
5: Well yeah. oh, you had me there, Ben.
0: I'm going, to try and, I'm going to try and wrap the subject up. Does anyone have any final thoughts on let's transition into a more positive light and say what kind of representation expectations do we have from Bond 25 and are we looking forward to seeing what they do with the characters, the cast? Well,
2: it'll be interesting to see what kind of spin Rami Malek puts on, on the villain role. Um, I have no real idea what it's going to be. Genetic technology he's he's gonna be a
4: clone of himself
1: he needs to be given the material though like he needs to actually be given a a a good character to play and good dialogue and i think he could be incredibly effective but for me his character is going to depend on what they give him because i think he's an incredibly talented actor
4: yeah but you could say that about the last sort of four bond villains um, Uh they've all been i mean uh, somebody helped me out here with um, the French guy from Quantum of Solace, Mathieu Amalric. Mathieu Amalric, yeah. I mean, he's you know he's a he's a great actor. He just wasn't given anything, um, and and it's mm-hmm. it, this is absolutely right. You know, you can your performance is only as good as the material that you've got. So, you know, to writing.
3: So he he. He could be sitting in his trailer right now preparing to film and thinking, I want to break free.
4: (laughs) (laughs) He he said something interesting
5: in an interview during the launch, which was something like, this one's going to be a bit different and I'm going to turn the audience's expectation of who a villain is on its head, Mm. or something to that effect. And I remembered um, during the screenwriting process for The World Is Not Enough when they went back and forth in Renard because they kept making him too sympathetic like the audience would actually start rooting for him a little bit. Um, I I already do, and I, I I just I just I just I just wonder if there's an element to that with with this one.
1: I hope so. Give us another Scaremonger. Like, give us somebody that like I loved Scaremonger as a villain because I sort of. I don't know if they meant it, but I connected with him, and I felt like he just wanted to be accepted by Bond.
3: See, there's more more love for the man with the golden gun. Yeah,
1: oh, I love that movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Take the boxes, James. We've talked about Die Another Day, and we've talked about the man with the golden gun. We're good. Specifically with Scaramanga, you know, I think they the screenwriters. I, I know it was a chaotic process, but they basically made him a better character than the his his counterpart in the novel. Mm.
5: Yeah, which then, years later, turned into Sanchez, right? With The, the dark mirror image of Bond. Right. But, um, to, to a less, you know, so... We're not so different, you and I. Uh, Bill, I think, was it me and you on Twitter, we were back and forth? I mean, uh, or Facebook or something, when they, when they announced that quote. And I was like, I wonder if they're going to pull a Doctor Who where the villain actually has to team up with Bond to stop something bigger at the end, just to completely throw yeah. something new. Do it the franchise. Wow. Do maybe it,
3: that's do what. It, do that, maybe
2: that's what that explosion they were testing is about.
3: That after that explosion, that that uh, I, the, the thing that I thought about was you. What you were talking about about <laughs> Daniel Craig and the CGI arms and legs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
4: it may still happen. Well, I, I just wanted to say the last thing that I, I will kind of say on on is, is actually answering Paul's um, original question, which is what what do I expect from Aww. from me. Hey. I see. I'm doing my job.
0: Um, it's because we didn't sit it as homework.
4: Yeah, I know. I never do it. Um, I do it on the night. Um, it's just sort of that. I just hope that, that if this is going to be Daniel's last film, which it, you know, all the indicators suggest it it will be, um, I hope that they spend enough time giving us a, a coherent narrative um where they treat the characters appropriately i don't really care about what locations we go to i'm not that bothered about a lot of the things that people traditionally like you know the action sequences or you know what the score is going to be like or what the i I want
5: where the gun barrel is yeah i
4: want i want a good story and i want the characters to be treated correctly and that will make me happy
0: lisa what's on your wish list
1: Well, that was such a nice sentiment. (laughs) I don't want to follow it up with what seems to be just like little petty things (laughs) after that. Um, Okay, not to raise my double O license here, but I would love for Madeline Swan to die. (laughs) I just don't like her character, and that seems absolutely terrible, but I want a little bit more space in the film. I would love to see, though, truthfully, Money Penny get her redemption narrative. Um, I think that she is... Uh, an underused character. She's trained in the field. I've always said, I always thought that she should have been more of a personal bodyguard. Like, let's keep expanding this role of Money Penny and have her, I don't know, be located where the action is rather than, you know, far away um, doing who knows what, Uh, but providing Bond with with a good source of backup. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean she has to be a field agent, but just giving her that opportunity um, and looking at uh, Naomi Harris and how much um, recognition she has had for her acting abilities, I'm hoping that that might push the screenwriters into um, considering giving her a little bit more of a defined role. Mm-hmm. So really, I want to see her character just get a little bit more fleshed out and, and have a bit of her own redemption uh, well, that's there, why
5: yeah. they always handed Judy Dench going into ridiculous places Because they said she's such a good actress We had to find a way of using her yeah. So why not do that for Naomi Harris yeah. now That we've got some space without Judy The
0: bodyguard was actually really interesting okay. Because for all the times that Em was out in the field And getting caught up in mischief And getting needing to be rescued She could have done with somebody that was Well,
4: <laughs> Ronson, Ronson, was then, not Ronson. In, in, Who was the other guy? Um, the guy from uh, the beginning of oh, Ronson? Owen Salmon Car- No, Um uh, the guy that uh, they had the big fight Mitchell. with Mitchell. Mitchell, yeah. Mitchell, Mitchell was yeah. apparently her bodyguard for all of that
5: right. the whole time. That in, whole time. In in the in the rebooted comic book series by Dynamite, Money Penny is described as M's last line of defense. So she's actually M's bodyguard. And so do you think
4: M will M will get her a, um, an ashtray then for five years of service? <laughs> really? Well. That
5: doesn't know when her birthday is. Yeah. She's kept the habit, though.
4: Yeah, I, I, actually, James,
3: I'm not. I'm not sure that that's not an Ian Fleming line, and it so don't take it so literally.
5: Yeah, they made a big point of it in the comic book when they rebooted it.
3: Uh, I think that's
1: yeah. an Ian Fleming line. Yep, and I've read articles on Money Penny, uh, Tara Brabazon. I think it's called Britain's Last Line of Defense is the title of like her article. So I think it was the. Uh, I think that's part of. That's been there for a while.
4: No, it's it was in it was in on um, a secret service. Um, yes. Where he says, "Good old money, penny, Britain's last line of defense. Um, that was my, oh, okay. that was my that's very very, very poor impression of George Lazenby doing the poor English impression. Um, straight, straight, cocky. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I think that's that's a bit more um nebulous i think what what lisa's saying is actually you know let's take this field agent and and make her a you know a little bit more useful in the field and i think that that does kind of make sense it seems it seems a bit strange to have somebody who's clearly that well trained just sit behind a desk and you know do
0: phone efforts she's done her time she's opened she's opened enough stores and cut enough ribbon now she can do something
4: Although uh, although Madeline, Madeline Swan dying is a bit
5: uh, a bit harsh,
1: I know. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> uh,
5: if they if they do it, people will complain. If they don't do it, I, people will complain. I'm going to complain, right? I don't think
4: they should kill her off. I think it's a too too obvious a born identity kind of. Mm.
5: Um. Um, ben, when have Eon, when have Eon in the last four in the Daniel Craig era taken the non obvious route? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Although it would be interesting to see like the demise of a relationship where the woman doesn't die. I mean, I said by Madeline Swankoff, like half in jest, but, you know, Ian Fleming's novels would always open up with some sort of explanation as to what happened to the woman in the previous novel. Some of them lived, some of them died, some of them got engaged to other people. It would be interesting for us to be able to have, you know, some sort of sense that he may have tried in a relationship. Maybe it didn't work. That's life. And, and sort of move on. Yeah.
2: specifically, yeah. he broke up with Tiffany Case, and it's explained in the, in, the, yeah. in, in, the, in the in the from Russia with Love novel. And yeah, they tried to move in together but, or something. And uh, they they yeah. did move in. They, they did move in, yeah. And then Horowitz kind of mimicked that with uh, Pussy Galore, briefly moving in with Bond, but then moving out because you know, it's just not for me. But um, I wonder why
0: it wasn't for her. <laughs> right. yeah well in the grand tradition of top gear shall we do the news yes
5: so this is an opportunity if you don't want spoilers to uh call it
0: okay bye i i i, I would <laughs> I, give,
5: I give i give paul full <laughs> credit for this idea of doing the news at the end rather than yeah, the start
3: yeah i think it's a good idea actually
0: yeah and lisa if we have wasted as much of your time as you would like to waste with us you don't
2: have to hang around to us it's
0: to- Speculate about <laughs> helicopters and cars, and whether or not something's
2: got a top or not. Well, well, one thing not so new, but I just stumbled across it this morning was, you know, I, I checked out the most recent uh, MGM call, and they didn't say much about Bond twenty five, but the executive leading the call says this is <laughs> this is Daniel Craig's last movie, which there's been that's not terribly surprising, but you know some of the tabloids have oh, Barbara Broccoli really wants him, get him back for Bond twenty six. And again, it was just one sentence of about six sentences, um, but it's like the, the the clearest, most definitive thing I've seen spoken. But of course, the question is, is it really going to happen? But that's too far.
0: Off. Never say never again, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> lull, lull him
3: into a full sense of security, and then just drag him back and shoot it. Anyway. Right.
5: Well, you know, we took a week off last week, didn't we? And nothing happened, so that that was all right. And then. We came back to, um, I, D- David. You kind of got a hint of it, didn't you, at last weekend? Um, but but color is all surprised, and nobody saw it coming. The nineteen eighty seven Aston Martin V eight Vantage coming back.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, last uh, Saturday I was lucky enough to be invited to go and drive uh, a number of Aston Martins at Mulbrook, where they flipped the uh, Aston in. Casino Royale, and uh, got I got to drive that track in uh, in a couple of cars and uh, a couple of other tracks in a couple of other cars. But um,
5: you spoke to Ben Collins, and he kind of alluded to the fact that we might not see what we expect to see. in The film, yeah,
3: uh, a, a couple of things about this and the uh, the first actually uh, came from an aston martin rep not not uh, ben collins and it was that when i asked which model would be in bond 25 uh the answer was uh quite evasive uh but also direct that they the aston martin were looking forward to uh providing aston martins in future bond films uh uh which and from which uh, mark was there as well and w- which we took to to mean that they weren't providing cars for bond 25 um but also uh, I did speak to uh to, to Ben collins as as well and uh and he uh I, I asked him uh whether he was involved in in bond 25 he, he said that he thought he was, and but he didn't know when, he didn't know where, but he has apparently uh, from from the photos I've seen, he, he showed up driving an Aston Martin in in Norway. Although it is a very definitely not a current model.
4: So, do, do we know what uh, what model he he turned up in Norway in?
3: Uh, well, uh, it looks like it was a uh, vantage from – a similar vantage to, from um, uh, Licence to Kill, uh, same number plates. Living everything. Daylights? Uh, yeah, sorry, yes, Living Daylights.
0: So some people are speculating that's, that's Bond and they're going to do some some vintage Skyfall face replacement?
3: Yeah, I, 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 I can't work it out. I, I, I honestly cannot work this, this out.
5: Uh, it, 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 you mean what, what's, the, what's 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 this? What is the plot point that gets him into a nineteen eighty seven Vantage? Right? He's got he it in a lockup when it's followed um, by modern day Range Rovers. That instantly shut down the silly flashback theory yeah, that some I, people
3: I, I mean, the uh, I, I think there is going to be a flashback in it because the. Uh, the, the french casting call w- was asking for somebody who uh, an actress who, who looks like uh leia sedu uh, aged age 12 so uh clearly there's there's going to be a a flashback but uh i uh, the, the aston martin in the flashback doesn't really make sense
5: neither do the 2019 range rovers yes i,
3: I, I don't i don't understand what's happening here <laughs>
4: I just wish i'd I just wish i stop trying to weave in other elements from it's it's like George Lazenby's desk. it's like don't stop putting things anachronistic things into the the great films just.
0: Leave David, it. I know Let's why do. they had to recreate the blue rumpa suit now. <laughs> it's coming back in Bond 25.
5: Well, the other thing is, yeah, you know, in 1987, Daniel Craig was 19 years old. So I mean, and no, nothing about the flashback works.
3: My, my maths on a late on a Friday night aren't going to go well, so uh, I'm not going to do them live.
5: And that car exploded. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wish
4: I'd just stop trying to do this this is just it makes no bloody sense at all and it's just better to just go this is this person's universe and this is this person's universe and never the twain shall they meet it's the same guy but let's just call it slightly skewed like a mirroring universe. like don't right.
3: try to given the fact that the the whole series was rebooted uh, they don't need I mean, to do this only, yeah exactly that
4: it's been rebooted so
2: like none of this
5: I I blame Sam Mendes. He started the sh- He started this shit with the gadgets and the DB5.
2: Well, it was a, it also in Casino Royale. It was kind of a token thing. It didn't really figure into the main pl- plot because, of course, it was a new Aston Martin that he ends up crashing later in the film. Um, it's it's you know it's just a quick homage and and it's. Know doesn't take up much your much of your time. Whereupon in Skyfall it goes on and on and on, and then they blow it up. You think, all right, we're done with the DB five, and then in the next movie, MI six is rebuilding it. Like, uh,
5: but to your, point, to your point David, I've been struggling to find a logical plot. How how logically that works that that cars in the film, other than. Maybe he's a member of an Aston Martin club and they switch cars. It's like, how do you explain it? It makes no sense. And we know, well, here's the thing. It is supposed to be the DB5 in the pre-title sequence in Italy. Maybe that has changed. Maybe it's no longer the DB5. Maybe it's the V8 Vantage now. I I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wonder if it's – because, you know, Daniel Craig's quote when he came back is, there's still some things I want to do that I didn't get to do. And I was, like, flippantly throwing out there, maybe he's got a checklist of, like, all the things he liked about the Bond series. And he's got to wedge him in. Well, if he wanted to drive an Aston Martin, he could have gone with uh, David and Mark. I'm going to channel my
0: inner Natalia and say, boys with toys, and um, it's probably time for us to move on. We, we, we didn't lose Lisa in the, in the fray of the –
1: I'm hanging <laughs> on.
0: Hang on there, hang on in there. All
1: right, <laughs> still here, still going strong.
0: All right. <laughs> so the first question comes: um, Do you think Barbara will ever do a cameo in the Bond films? Do you think this will be Michael's last cameo? And what is your favourite Michael Wilson cameo? I can let you can take any one of those three questions and run with it.
5: Mm,
3: well, I, I think it's kind of irrelevant, uh, in a way.
0: Oh no! Here we go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Here we go. What it, it, it's just like last well, time we did some questions. We diagnosed them rather than answered them. <laughs> well, I, I I think okay. Let, let let me answer straight then. I I don't think Barbara probably will because she hasn't to date, um, and so because she she doesn't feel like it, so she doesn't she hasn't done it. She's got the opportunity. Uh, Michael feels like it, so he's done it. It's not a big thing. It's just that he something he finds fun, and uh, you know, uh, you can think, well, that's that's a fun thing to do, or you can think, well, it's a stupid thing to do. Um, It's kind of irrelevant, and I don't have a favorite Michael Wilson cameo. It's just uh, I never noticed them until afterwards. So no,
4: I have a least I have a least favorite one. If, if we have to do I I really don't like his cameo in Casino Royale because his character is not a cameo. Um, and you know, I think that that changes slightly the, the dynamic. I, I,
5: I'd, I'd say Tomorrow Never Dies as well
2: is pretty bad.
4: Oh, that's the, the slimes.
5: yeah,
2: yeah it's, pretty bad. yeah, it's too long for a cameo. I mean, he had a few lines of dialogue. I mean, not a lot, but like three or four. Um, and it also tends to draw attention to itself. I, I think the better cameos were are basically you have to like, where was he? Um,
4: yeah, you can only see him for like a like a really brief uh, flash of a second, and and you you kind of go. Oh, cool. You know, like somebody had to point it out to me. I think it was like on the second view.
2: The World is Not Enough was very similar. I think he was like the guy who opened the door to the private room where they were you know, having that special game, something like that. Yeah, because it's like to say, tomorrow never dies. It just draws attention to itself. And so did the one in Casino. I just remember it was like you almost expect there to be a neon sign. Hey, Michael Wilson cameo. (laughs)
4: Yeah, and I, I just think anything that I mean, look, there's suspension of disbelief in all Bond films, obviously, but I, I, I still can contend that you shouldn't ever break the fourth
5: wall. And, uh, Doesn't ever happen and, to the other film. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to say. I knew the moment I said that, that,
5: that would come yeah. up. But. The, the other thing is um, these cameos are very tiring. Mm.
4: Well, he's, he's only going to do it once every
2: couple of years. I can't see how tiring it would be. Hitchcock rather famously did cameos, but toward the end of his career, you know, he, he got them he got them done like right at the beginning of the film because you know if you do it in the middle, it you know takes you out of the story. So it's like you know pretty close to the beginning.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think he, I think he, was it was in the Birds. He's just basically like right at the beginning of the movie. He comes out of the, of the North
2: by
5: North by Northwest. He walks on the bus right in yeah. the credits. Then uh, yeah. the pre-titles. Yeah. Yep. He misses the bus. Sorry, he misses. The
0: Michael, bus. one day he'll get cut,
5: and then he won't be in the
0: film. So that's why they're probably giving him more and more lavish and. Uh, Avert cameos, is to make sure he doesn't can't get cut from the film. Show
2: him in bed sleeping,
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Rest, resting when he's uh, yeah. We'll just <laughs> we, we, should just we should just leave it there. Um, and I
4: don't think I don't think, but Bar- I agree. I don't think Barbara uh, will make a cameo. I, whether she should or shouldn't is up to her. It's not. You've yeah, really... got to
5: remember, Barbara Rockley, never; she never liked doing the publicity, and she always stood a step behind Michael G. Wilson and any of the um, press events. And it was Spectre that forced her to the to the forefront yeah. because Michael G. Wilson couldn't do it, right? So, uh, I think that's what's pushed her out into the the front line. She never wanted to be that that role, and. Um... Lots of interviews. She said she hated that. Somewhere in um, my deep recess of the brain. I think she is
0: in Octopussy and the Living Daylights, isn't she? Yes, she is. is.
3: Ah. Okay, so the answer is she already did it.
5: And your question is invalid.
1: When you're talking about Hitchcock, (laughs) it reminds me of Fritz Lang. And Hitchcock was obsessed with Fritz Lang and copied everything that he did. And so Hitchcock is in his movies, but Fritz Lang always viewed the filmmaker as being – not an author, but a handworker. So someone who's crafting a film. So his, his films, he was presented with his hands in the film, so not his face. So it would be interesting if Barbara Broccoli is not necessarily her face in the film, but if she wanted to sort of have her touch be in it, literally maybe just have like her hands or something.
2: Well, am I am I correct that it was Terrence Young's hands who signs the photo from Russia with Love, you know, when Bond is giving the photo back? And, and he was also doubling for yep. uh, Pedro Armandari's in the long shots at the gypsy camp um, so so like so when the guys are rushing Karam, it's Terence Young who's you know is shooting at him you know after the table's been turned over.
0: All his hand cameos brings to mind Thunderbirds again. I just have to get that wedge that. yep. One last question. If you could pick, pick one former crew member, director, screenwriter, composer, etc. to work on one more Bond film, who would it be and yeah. potentially why? Who would you like to, in these, in these words, resurrect? They don't have to be dead. It's an invalid question.
5: First choice, John Barry. Second choice, John Barry. Third choice, John Barry.
2: <laughs> Richard Maybaum. Richard Maybaum, not necessarily to write it, but I'd just be curious to get his you – know, to bring him back to life, get his perspective on what's happened to the series.
4: Um, yeah, I think Bill, um, you know, he's he was such a part of the DNA of the world of Bond that that right, the, the, like developing it and writing it. Um, it would be really interesting to see his take on it. Um, because people talk about John Barry and people talk about Ken Adam and their contributions, but probably not in the same. Reverential, uh, uh, sorry, um, Mayman's probably not mentioned in quite the same reverential terms, and and perhaps should be.
2: And also, just in terms of just having a chat, not actually working on the film, um, Tom Mankiewicz, because on those DVD extras, he's this very kind of witty presence. You know, when he tells anecdotes in a very amusing way, um, you know, it, it, I th- I think, you know, his commentary track on Live and Let Die is like one of the better commentary tracks because whether you like his choices or not, he explains in a very concise, understandable way why he made them. And even, you know, and he talks about choices he, you know, he regrets. Um yeah, so j- just, you know, to be able to, you know, bring him back for 24 hours just to have a talk with him, you know, I I'd be up for that. Or Peter Hunt. Um another one who's yeah, that would be
4: yeah um for me uh, obviously as I said Ken Adam because of because of just crafting that world um, and I'd be interesting to see because he was always on the forefront of um, kind of modernism um, considering how far um, architecture has come along and, and the technology to create um, shapes and forms I'd be really interesting to see what he would uh,
1: this is not going to fully answer your question because you gave all like the good ones already. I've always wanted to see a previous actor who played James Bond play a villain in a Bond film and just mess with us.
5: Well, the way that Eon's the way that Eon's going. We've we've just stopped being friends now,
4: so that's a real shame. <laughs> I was just I was just getting to like you, and uh, and now and now it's all over.
2: George Lazenby is free, and Tiffany Dalton has played villains. Yeah, the, the the Rocketeer. I mean, that's a long time ago, but that was and Hot Fuzz.
4: Yeah, he was he's been, he was very good in them. Um, he has a he has a particularly nice kind of villainous quality to him. But I I, I just don't like the idea of
0: Lisa did uh, say she wanted to mess with us yeah. though, so she's clearly effective in that <laughs> desire.
4: Uh, Lisa, when they when they were going to bring back um, Sean Connery for the role of um, uh, what's his face? Cow Milker. Cow Milker, uh, which was the original name for that film, by the way. And with that, uh, I
0: think we will, uh, we'll call an end to it. Thank you for joining me on another interesting, rambling, and ridiculously <laughs> long version of this 20-minute podcast that we pitched to David. and. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I even told Lisa it would only be 90 minutes, but you know, there you go. Yeah, Hopefully um, we can rope you back in when we, when we've got some, well, whenever you feel like it really would value your opinions. That leaves me to thank Bill, Lisa, James, Ben and David for joining me. You can continue to reach out to us with the hashtag AskBond on Twitter and we'll do our best to answer them in a fair, reasonable and not too deconstructive way on future episodes in the series. And we'll speak to you in a week or so.